artists were seen as being hard to work with, awkward, litigious if they wanted a written contract. You know, I think that as a bogeyman has now been substantially defeated and actually if an artist now wants written terms that's usually a sign that they are professional and they take some care and pride in what they do and so I think those cultural shifts are happening. From Arcata, this is The Bigger Picture, an inside look at the businesses that make the art world work and the stories behind the people that shape them. Today we are joined by John Sharples, a commercial IP and art lawyer who specialises in intellectual property and is known for his expertise working with experimental art practices and artists. He trained intellectual property team Simmons & Simmons and then went on to work with Mishkon Derea, Canvas Art Law and today works at Howard Kennedy. Thank you for joining us, John. Hello, thank you for having me. Now, you're known for having particular expertise and uh, you enjoy working with contemporary artists. So I'm hoping today we can tackle some art law subjects that are less familiar for some of us that have been sort of following it for a number of years. Sure. Um, And test your knowledge and all our favourite acronyms, AI, NFTs, AR, everything, hopefully. But I wanted to start off just trying to understand um, how you got into law in the first place. So as long as I can remember, I've wanted to be a lawyer. I was a weird kid at about 12 <laughs> watching um Ali McBeal on 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 TV and yeah so for as long as I can think back I told people I wanted to be a lawyer um I think the idea of intellectual jousting making arguments has always a- appealed to me for so for a long time I harbored the ambition of being a barrister and it ended up going the other way in the end being a solicitor but um yeah, it has always just appealed. So no one in the family has done it. And so it just, yeah, it's uh, difficult to say why. And straight away into the art field or was that a sort of separate interest? How did that sort of relationship begin? That happened a bit by accident. So I've always had a private passion for the arts and in particular visual arts. And I certainly didn't set out thinking I was going to be able to combine my professional life and the art world and um i as you say i, I trained at simmons and simmons which is you know a big international corporate firm and one of the things that was interesting about it you know it wasn't the reason i wanted to work there but one of the reasons was it had a famous contemporary art collection and from the outside whenever you see these things they look kind of professionalized and you you assume that there's a, a whole team of people working on it but actually once I got there, um, I realized there was room for someone with some knowledge and some enthusiasm to sort of get hold of it. And um, it, it had been founded by a lawyer who was a partner there, but he'd retired. And so when the person who was responsible for it, when I joined, found out that I did have some interest, um, he quickly got me involved. And before long, I was running it. And so although Simmons & Simmons doesn't really act in the art sector, it's not a priority um, strategically for where it wants to work, um, it does have this art collection. And so in practice, that meant very quickly I was acquiring art from the firm, for the, for the firm. I was going around all the degree shows in London, sort of talent scouting. I was occasionally lending works from the collection to museum shows. And so slowly but surely, I'm doing a consignment agreement here, or a loan agreement there. I'm a, a, a acquiring work and just slowly building up knowledge of how this very odd ecosystem fits together. And because I was going to all those degree shows, I stuck out as being maybe some unusual looking to be going around those wearing a suit and tie. And so young artists got to know who I was. And before long, I fielded a steady stream of questions that artists had. Yeah. And that has just snowballed into something that means today, if there's something that early, early to mid-career artists have on that has a legal dimension, some like you know if someone's getting evicted from their studio or if someone has been tied into a predatory contract or if someone has been scammed in some way it doesn't take long before that reaches my door Mm. and so it became um a very natural thing for me to think well actually i not i don't want to just do corporate intellectual property work and art sector work um sort of 
as a hobby on the side. I think I can make a whole practice out of this. And so that's what I've been doing ever since. And just going back to the collection itself, obviously you're going to degree show. So early to mid career was part of that collection. What sort of scale of collection and artists were involved in that? Who are you sort of acquiring? So it was a real privilege to look after the Simmons collection because I've forgotten the numbers and stats now, but let's say there were a dozen Turner Prize winners another dozen Turner Prize nominees. And it was a collection that was built in the 90s um, when you could build a great collection on a fairly modest budget. And so, you know, it had all the YBA names like Damien Hurst and Tracy Emin and Sarah Lucas and Rachel Whiteread. Um, so, it, yeah, it had a lot of household names. Um, and in those days, you could, you, you know, a small budget of let's say 25 30 grand a year went a long way now by the time i was involved the budget hadn't changed but the art world had changed beyond all recognition but so that's why i was you know shopping at um degree shows because that was basically our price point but it you know it is the most interesting place to buy art because um those artists it's such a fragile moment in an artist's career. So they, you know, they graduate and most of them are thinking, am I going to be able to make a living in this field? Am I going to carry on or am I going to do something else? And so they really remember those who make supportive gestures and acquisitions at that time. So, yeah, that's a pretty um, – it's, uh, it, it's not an orthodox way of building – sort of artist relationships but that's yeah, that's how it started for me you also have to be uh have a confidence i guess in your acquisitions at that stage to be sort of encountering people um postgraduate just after graduation mm. often people are arm themselves with advisors and stuff at that point because you're sort of looking you have to have quite a confidence in your decisions i think yeah maybe but one of the joys of buying for a corporate collection that um doesn't really have any kind of investment imperative is that um making the wrong call, whatever that means, is fairly inconsequential. So, you know, if you buy something that where the artist doesn't go on to, to get gallery representation and doesn't go on to have museum shows, that's not a disaster. Every artwork is interesting on its own terms. Um, if you're buying at that level, then, you know, the reality is that most artists who graduate from art schools will not still be practicing as an artist even five years later. So um, so I, I never felt there was any any pressure. But what is interesting, and I, I don't think that I have an eye, and I think the concept of an eye is a bit of a bogus one, but I, I think I do have a bit of a sense for which artists have a combination of qualities that mean they will navigate this weird art world and progress up that very specific validation structure. And so, you know, the kind of artists whose work that I've bought in, at that degree show level include people who are now like stars of the of the contemporary art world. So I'm thinking about people like Rachel Jones and Alvaro Barrington. Um, and my, now my mind's gone blank, but uh, people have gone on to have gallery representation and museum shows. And so the other thing I should say is that as well as buying for the firm, so spending someone else's money, I became addicted to that dynamic and became a collector in my own right. And so I've now bought over 200 artworks for myself, yeah. which, um, again, takes you up the curve in understanding how galleries operate. So, I've, you know, I've seen lots of, uh, I, before I ever advised on them. I saw lots of terms of sale and worked out all the, the, the quirks that exist in that odd market definitely gives you more of a proximity to the detail doesn't it yeah yes like you can write about auction houses all the time but you're in terms of actually looking at a contract in detail until it's your money on the line and and something you're invested in having to look through that detail tends to be um quite a task yeah i mean i don't think that every lawyer has to have personally engaged in the field that they advise on and 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 you know there are a number of situations where some level of objective detachment is probably healthy but definitely when people deal with me in the art world they know that i share their passion and uh understand what it is they do and what all the different pressures are and just before we move on from simmons and simmons um it says you're a chair of the uh, their art network what was that was that just like a partnership uh... well that was that was an internal group 
that designed to improve the knowledge and appreciation of people in the firm for this extraordinary collection that they had. So one of the things with looking after a collection in a working building is that you don't have museum conditions. And so um, there's a constant tension between wanting to make the work as available and as accessible as possible and, and looking after it in a responsible way. And so I remember, uh, I hope they don't mind me talking about this, which is that <laughs> once I was working at my desk and someone sent me a WhatsApp message saying, really think you should come and see what's going on in meeting room 32. An external trainer has just stuck his session notes to the surface of a mounted photograph, and like not glazed. And you know, if I'd have been in the room at the time, I think I probably would have just squealed as a reflex reaction, but no one in the room did. But they did let me know what was going on. And so very quickly, I was able to sort of talk to client reception and say, could you please just have a quick word with the external person in room 32 and let them know that that surface isn't just decoration. It's an artwork. Um, so one of the, yeah, one of the reasons to have an art, an internal art network at Simmons was to encourage people to enjoy the art, to know something about it, to write about it and to look after it. And the market you're describing there, as you say, the price points were different. The well, the whole market was different. The whole ecosystem. You know, you talk about the YBAs there. The the market they were functioning in legally, but as a market as well, is very different to today. Um, in terms of the issues in the legal in your legal work, you know, working directly with artists, in particular contemporary artists, do you think the key issues being tackled have changed significantly, or is it just the sort of um, application or challenges within those issues have developed if that makes sense well so the art world in the 90s was i think relatively small and you could probably fit all of the movers and shakers in the art world at that time into the same islington dinner party and i dare say it happened quite a few, a few times and then you know in the in, and in the 90s of course we had no tape modern so tape modern opens in the early early noughties and then no freeze so freeze um what was that around 2005 and what's happened in the 20 years since is this just the, you know the globalization of the art market and an explosion of it in terms of the size of the sector um so it's just become so much more professionalized and financialized um and the major change that's occurred in the 10 years that i've been active in relation to, to contemporary artists is it when I first started looking at this stuff, um, artists would graduate. And then in the first couple of years after graduation, they'd hope for a group show here and there. and But they'd have some breathing space with which to think about what it is they wanted to make. And, and graduating was the start of something rather than the end of something. And what happens now is that um, galleries and agents and other middlemen are circling while the artists are still studying um the the, the competition to sign up the next hot artist is so intense that um people are looking earlier and earlier and earlier in artists careers and there's an incredible pressure on artists now to graduate fully formed right, ready to go in 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 the in the market and having settled on what it is they want to make work about and how it is that work is going to look, and um, and in that high pressure environment, artists are quite vulnerable to um, listening to the wrong person or signing the wrong agreement mm. um, and being led the wrong way. And it's because it, it's a very difficult world for them to navigate as well, mm. because there's no um, module on any of the art courses that tells you how to be a professional artist. And I, you know, I have mixed feelings about that because um, in some sense, it feels a little bit neglectful not to equip artists with the tools to look after themselves and to understand how this market works. But on the other hand, if you read history or whatever else it might be, there's no module telling you how to be a working historian or, you know, how to invoice people for your work and stuff like that. And so I am sympathetic to the argument that the art studying art should be about the art and not the business side of it. But I never, I do enjoy the occasions when art schools ask me to go in and 
present to the students. And most of them, when I do that, and I've done that um, pretty much all the top art schools in London, as I leave, they express a mixture of feeling pleased that they now have this new information, but also terrified about... (laughs) I'd be the latter. The, the potential pitfalls. <laughs> Mostly they're grateful to know that the, the pitfalls and trapdoors are there and, and you know, who they might go to to avoid them. But, um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a terrifying market with the sharks circling at a very early stage. And so I think on balance, I am in favour of giving artists the knowledge as early as possible to think about how they might protect themselves but um i do understand those who say that art school should be about something else i mean that's been an art that's sort of been an argument linked with um the financialization of the market as well isn't it there's been that shift within um courses to get artists to think about their career path and how they brand themselves how they market themselves because as you say, there is that purity around just focusing on their art, but in a way you need to create that space where you can protect your working space and be able to practice without legal or financial concerns sort of intervening it. So yeah, it's trying to find that balance. And I mean, I've got a really basic question. Having like when I was a million years ago coming out of university, even if I was aware of pitfalls and anyone was interested in anything I was doing, I can't really imagine having the finance to employ legal advice. So my understanding tends through that law that lawyers get engaged when things go wrong. Is that mm. is that naive? No, that is right. And so but I think with all law you know, lawyers are generally quite keen to help people and do interesting things and if an early career artist comes to you and says uh, you know i'm don't have much cash but i have been presented with this contract you know i think i and and most of my colleagues and peers would be quite keen to help that artist as fully as possible and uh and indeed lots of my clients today like my active fee paying clients the reason I have a relationship with them is because I gave them a steer without charging them very early in their career. And and actually, I'm now a beneficiary of the fact that artists' careers move very quickly because they, they, they I, you know, I've been on that journey with a few artists who have moved from being graduating cash poor to now being represented by a blue chip gallery, mm-hmm. all within a five or you know five or six year span. So, so I think. W- Talking to a lawyer isn't necessarily like getting into a taxi and the meter starts running immediately. You know, I'm not in any way, it's fine. <laughs> and so mo- most lawyers will will say, "Look, we can have a preliminary conversation, and then I, I can give you an indication of what I would need to charge to draft you a new agreement or whatever." And you know, there are loads of great sources of free advice as well. I think um, artists are well advised to to register with an organization like DAX or there are charities out there like ArtQuest and AN and just lots of sources of information and um, artists are most powerful when they act in concert with other artists so artists tell it, teach each other how this market works yeah. and so artists quite often reach out to someone who is represented by a gallery and say you know how did this work for you is this normal that's a very common question in an art context. Someone will message me and say, is this normal? Because everything's so opaque and confidential and discreet that actually that people don't have um, a sense of just what what is standard. So yeah, every day someone says to me, is, is, is this standard? Such a good point, because in so many areas in life, you could quite quickly, like real estate or something, you could quite quickly do a Google search and get loads of advice. Yes. The art world, so many, not all of it, but pockets of it are so different for each deal, each relationship. And that information just isn't as accessible, I don't think. Definitely not. And to some extent, I recognize that I'm a beneficiary of that, because even the reason why the job of being an art lawyer exists is because it, it is a sufficiently weird sector to require that um, advisors understand who everyone is, how it fits together, what these unusual assets are, what these odd ways of doing business consist of. And so the fact that it's extremely esoteric is, yeah, is, is why it's even um, exists as a niche area of practice. 
And going back to the sort of pitfalls you highlight to artists, but I guess the sector generally, what are the key, so you have to pick three or four key pitfalls for artists, the ones that most regularly come up in your practice, what would mm. they be? Um, so quite often artists are now asked to sign something that gives another party an ongoing and lifelong right in their output in some way and yeah if a contract is it really is really predatory and unbalanced then it probably isn't un- it probably isn't enforceable anyway but a lot of artists have really bad early experiences of being signing something without really understanding it and realizing after the fact that they've done a bad deal um so anything that ties an artist in to a long period of exclusivity without an obvious right of termination if things aren't going well that is an obvious pitfall now as a regular interview as a regular sort of follower of terrible boy band and girl bands in the 90s that has a lot of um similarities to the music industry is that right, right absolutely right so it's very similar to someone like taylor swift signing over the the, <laughs> the, the to my level thank the, you the rights to their <laughs> original material absolutely and then closely linked to that is quite there are loads of um intermediaries and collectors who want to build up a kind of bulk position in an artist's work these days and so want to acquire m- many many works by the same artist because that because and, and buying cheaply at the start of their career and because you only need to have one artist go through the roof and you know you might be acquiring the work of lots of artists in this way but if you acquire the work very cheaply if one of them becomes a star of the market then it pays off extremely handsomely and but the trouble with any one individual or company um owning more than a couple of your works is that they unfortunately then wield quite a lot of power over your market mm-hmm. so if they you know if at any one time they decided to dump then that could be devastating for your market or so there are lots of different ways and so i think artists need to be extremely vigilant like if if they're even if their own gallery is is constantly building up their own collection of their work um that's something to be sort of sensitive to and thinking about if you're comfortable about if if you you go and work with another gallery in the future are you comfortable with that your previous gallery owning you know 20 of your works legally do you have any recourse or uh control in that sort of environment that's just a personality well you only have control in the sense that when you first enter into your arrangements you Mm. could say to the gallery that you're not allowed to buy work for yourself without my consent and and um, something that uh, a recurring tension in in the way that art deals are structured is that um, quite often there's someone who's acting as the artist's agent, but at the same time as so the act they're acting as the artist's agent and therefore owe fiduciary duties to the artist, but at the same time they're servicing their buyers, who um, who are they see as their customers, so they want to act in the best interests of their own customers as well and there's always a tension between what's truly in the artist's best interest what's truly in the gallery's best interest and if the gallery is selling to itself rather than museums or good collectors and preferring itself as a buyer Mm. then that obviously is a conflict so there are lots of potentials for conflicts of interests and duties in an art context just due to that odd setup of um, always tending to have middlemen but that's such a pressure, as you say, for a young artist to get that first few contracts right. And given yeah. you're strapped for cash and pretty keen for anyone to represent you a lot of the time, yeah. that's massive vulnerability. Yeah. And what I always have to restrain myself from doing is if an artist comes to me and says, I've just been offered representation by, and it's a top gallery, I have to stop myself from saying congratulations because they, the most at that point, 
we need to look after their rights in relation to the gallery. And so it doesn't work for them to feel lucky that they're being represented at all. That is a moment at which to be assertive about what comes next. Okay. Those issues, though, I can understand how the market being the way it is, as you say, it's accelerated, I think is the best term, so much in 10 years. So that pressure on artists is so much more, I can imagine, now than 10 years ago. But those sort of relationships, they must be quite age-old art market sort of challenges for artists. I'm, I'm guessing even, not when there was the patron system, but way back, that's something artists have always got to consider when they enter into contracts with galleries. As soon as the gallery system was up and running, that must have been issues that the artist was dealing with rather than something new. Yeah, I just think the... Um the volume and velocity of the whole thing has changed a lot. And the and the idea that you can have extreme market success and still be in your 20s, that's, that's brand new. And it's so, you know, it's, I think it's quite different. If the market sort of rewards established and experienced artists who are seen to reach kind of the height of their artistic powers in their 40s or 50s or 60s that's one thing but if actually what people are interested in speculating on is what's called wet paint you know paintings just out the studio by artists in their 20s i do think that's a very different and new dynamic that that hasn't existed until the last 10 years yeah that makes sense and Moving on to new, I always bother you every time I'm doing an article on crypto, blockchain, mm. all your favorite subjects. That is very much a new what's the word? challenge, opportunity, arena for a lot of contemporary artists. How yeah. has that shifted your day job, I guess? Well, back in around 2017, I looked around the sector I was working in, so IP and technology, and realized that it was probably a good idea to um, make myself a blockchain guru at the time when my older colleagues weren't interested in that and weren't taking part in conversations on that. And so they had no advantage over me as the incumbent. So in anything that, so all young lawyers should find something that is new mm. and in which the older generation don't have the advantage of already practicing in that area and so i i took an active interest in probably more blockchain technologies than crypto itself and i was seconded to a couple of different clients back then one was a was an oil company and one was a bank and in both places anyone who had the word strategy in their job title was fishing around for a way to use blockchains. Mm-hmm. Totally wrongheaded because usually you start with a problem and seek a solution. Here, there's a load of people desperate to deploy, find a problem to deploy a solution to. Um, and I remember concluding at the time that it is, this is so unlikely to be the right solution for, for any of these problems. I, and I, I said back in 2017, I think there are two use cases of blockchain. One is cryptocurrencies and the other is to authenticate digital artwork <laughs> because you can be there, you can create a provenance record at the moment of creation. And I have to say, even though I had that sort of minor insight back then, I definitely did not have a sense that NFTs were coming or what that might look like or how you might participate. You know, I might be, um, I might have a bigger budget for buying my art collection now if, if back then, if I had known what, how NFTs were going to go. Um, but for, for, yeah, for most, in most sectors, the idea of like, tracking things and recording things on a blockchain is is going to be um cumbersome and expensive but but there is this thing in relation to digital works which is it's so hard to create a market for something that isn't scarce and photography went on that same journey by developing certain collectively agreed industry standards around editions and things like that and so i definitely thought well nfts could be that for digital work and I remember advising some people I knew who were in the digital art game at the time, thinking you should really do something about this. And but 
most of them didn't and most of them probably did the right thing because to have spent a load of money on your own solution at the time would not have in any way guaranteed you could capture the nft explosion so most people um innovating in the, in their own silos um would have wasted their money if they if they'd spent loads on, on developing something in this area and so Really, it was the circumstances of the pandemic and people being shut in their homes that meant NFTs had the explosion they did. You know, their technology wasn't new. What was new was that people were confined to their houses and a lot of, and lots of people had spare disposable income that they couldn't spend on going to restaurants or going on holiday. And one of the ways in which they could spend it was on digital artworks. So it's a very specific moment in history. And it also coincided with, I don't know if you ever got um, on audio social media, On there was an app Clubhouse. <laughs> no? I mean, you see me so, try to use Zoom. Right, okay. Yeah. So people used to get together in audio chat rooms and talk about things and a big early driver of the explosion in NFTs was people talking about NFTs, evangelizing about them on audio social media. And so I, in those days when we're locked in our homes, I would listen and listen and listen to conversations about NFTs on Clubhouse. And through that, I got to know various people uh, involved in this new ecosystem. Um, And I've always approached it from the position of being skeptical but an informed skeptic and and i've always thought that it was going to be very hard for the for the traditional art market to participate in this for all all kinds of reasons so when it first kicked off there were quite well-founded concerns about how much energy it processes yeah. involves to process ethereum transactions that has now since fallen away but um because yeah, of the proof of what was it proof that, of Whatever yeah, that, right, exactly right, right. So proof of work requires a lot of computing power. Proof of stake doesn't. And so now Ethereum has moved to proof of stake. Um, I'm impressed, by the way. That's good. That I, you're, I you're, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's taken me a few years now. <laughs> um, but mostly the art is terrible. You know, it's all kitsch. And the whole system is fueled by speculation and i know that's also a criticism that can be leveled at art but you know i i still think most most people even the most sort of rapacious dealers involved in art do actually love the art and have a deep connection to it and but nfts is all about trading velocity and that's it and so most traditional fine art galleries and artists just didn't weren't attracted enough to make the leap into this kind of quite vulgar context. And so there have been really relatively few crossovers. Um, And I think the world, lots of um, traditional art market participants have had a really good look at it and spent some money on thinking about how they might take part. And some have taken the plunge. So, you know, the auction houses have spotted an opportunity to monetize their own brands because they could be a trusted and respectable counterparty. And so people did go to them um, to buy very high price items because they knew that an an old brand and a substantial company stood behind it and maybe gave them some feeling of being protected. Mm-hmm. Um, Pace Gallery made its own platform, but others who I know who have looked at it, like Hauser and Worth and Gagosi and people who have thought about what it might be to have their own NFT platforms have ultimately decided to pause it because um, the associations were wrong. Or the market crashing? Did that not? Market, yeah, yeah, absolutely. The market crashing as well. But um, and I think had the market carried on, then all those galleries would have wanted to find a way to participate. But once the market isn't there, and yeah, the volumes dropped by more than ninety-five percent over the course of last year, from the beginning till the end. Um, 
it becomes a no-brainer not to be involved because actually there isn't loads of money sloshing about that as a new area of activity. And so it isn't worth making those compromises around the integrity of your roster and um, the sort of associations that you're seeking. And and it's funny because we all know that the the art world has been on a real journey in terms of represent, representation of female artists, representation of artists of color, um, you know, and NFTs are replicating all of those mistakes yeah. <laughs> that it's the really art world made. Yeah. And, and there's some very dated, like aesthetic values. Like there's lots of sort of softly lit photography of scantily clad women in an NFT context and just the stuff that just wouldn't fly in a, in a, in an art context now. Mm. So the associations are generally quite bad. Um, I agree with you. Had there been money to be made, those lots of traditional art market participants would have found a way to hold their nose and make that money, as indeed the auction houses did. But um, for most of them, it's something that they're not thinking about too much right now. And I guess I think, as you say, it was this initial explosion. We're all scrabbling around trying to, well, contacting you, trying to work out what all the various acronyms meant. But I guess for me, what's sort of coming out the other side of it is um, looking at almost how these technologies can relate to the physical world so you you started off when you were looking in 2017 at the potential yeah you, you were looking at its um ability to authenticate digital works yeah but I think what's been quite interesting recently is how the traditional art market if we can call it that is thinking about how blockchain technology and nfts to some extent can be used to bridge um the digital and physical Yes, digital because we will hate ourselves too much, but that sort of relationship. Do you know? What I, mean? I think that that's still developing and isn't being given up on yet. Yeah, maybe. And the, the, there are certainly lots of conversations about whether blockchains can play a role in fixing provenance information and the, the yeah. idea that you might have a um, hologram or QR code or near field communication chip embedded in the back of a painting so that one day you can have strong evidence that the thing you have is is the genuine article and not inauthentic um mostly people i speak to at high-end galleries funny enough i had this conversation with someone yesterday at a blue chip gallery and we we agreed that most of these solutions are solving a problem that doesn't exist there are not um in there aren't many cases involving provenance doubts in relation to contemporary art you know there's all and especially now there's so much evidence that is naturally generated by the digital world around the exhibition and sale of paintings so you know photographs emails document trails and the other thing i would say is that um if you're a tech startup that is offering artists or galleries some kind of solution most tech startups, whoever they are, go bust. Mm. So for most most of those companies won't exist in five years. That's not because I have a, a particular view about what they're doing, but that's just a reality of all tech startups. Um, it's by no means clear which blockchains will be favored in three years' time. You know, that so there are as you know, there are there are various different blockchains. And so there's no guarantee that if you commit something to a blockchain today, that will be an active and used blockchain in three years' time. Nor is there any guarantee what fees it will cost to interact with it. And so mostly companies selling a service that involves their interface to connecting to blockchain records, it just I'm very unconvinced by it as a as an area as that it's a valuable service for artists and galleries. And so mostly I'm pouring cold water on all of that as a kind of cottage industry at the moment saying to artists and galleries for goodness sake don't make this another thing that you're asked to pay for up front but we'll see i mean um you know i i do think the underlying technology uh will definitely have more and more applications in, in relation to um providing gated access to things and and so i don't think i definitely think it will come back and it will be, play a big part in our lives but in its current form 
it's just unusable and unreliable and expensive. And so it would just take a long time before it, there are mainstream adoptions of it. Now, I don't want to put your job at risk, but earlier you said that obviously the lack of trans not lack of transparency, but the sort of um, information imbalance within the market yeah. most creates this space for advisories, legal advice, etc. One of the hopes for all these new technologies and platforms is around increased transparency, democratization of information, etc. Could that be a shift that artists could see coming? Would you hope that that is? Um. Yeah, I mean, I'd love more transparency, and I'm, you know, I'm in, in have been involved in various initiatives. For example, to have um, public institutions who acquire and commission art to be upfront about what they, what fees they pay to artists, and on what basis, and to move away from this model in which artists are supposed to be grateful for anything they're given and and expected to work hundreds of hours you know for a two thousand pound artist fee so i think uh, the more transparency there is the better around the, the fact that um at the moment artists are very poorly treated and poorly paid and so if those practices or are brought out into the sunlight and and um, institutions are under some pressure to improve how that all works and that's a really good thing um, and as, as I say artists do talk to each other and I'm all in favour of artists sharing information about what it is they can ask for and um, I think we are moving away from a period in which artists were seen as being hard to work with, awkward, litigious, if they wanted a written contract. You know, I think that as a bogeyman has now been substantially defeated. And actually, if an artist now wants written terms, that's usually a sign that they are professional and they take some care yeah. and pride in what they do. And so I think those cultural shifts are happening. And then my final question around tech, I guess, or this whole new digital revolution. I hate all these cliches, but I'm going to put them all in. Um, your area of expertise, intellectual property, mm. not necessarily just with art. To what extent is that being challenged, stretched and explored with these sort of new set of challenges and opportunities? Yeah, I mean, it's funny because I started out as an intellectual property specialist and I now, most of my work now probably doesn't have an intellectual property dimension. So I, you know, I'm, I'm involved in contracts and disputes that arise from commercial arrangements. However, the sweet spot in my interests and expertise is when there's an art sector problem with an intellectual property dimension. And one of the subjects that I'm most interested in is how artists can make use of third-party copyright material in a way that is considered fair. And so lots of appropriation artists want to do this. And you will probably have seen the US Supreme Court has recently handed down its decision in relation to Andy Warhol, mm -hmm. the Andy Warhol Foundation and the photographer Lynn Goldsmith. And so I'm extremely interested in the conversations <clears throat> around what use artists can legitimately and fairly make of the images that are in the world. Like if our world is formed of imagery, then images are, are found objects like any other that have to be the raw material that artists use. And so there are some very nuanced discussions to be had about around the distinction between plagiarism at one end and uh, homage and parody and mm. something you know deliberately playing with with uh, with our self-referential culture and what I find really frustrating a lot of the time is that um, those debates are very poorly represented, even in our quite specialist press. So Luke Toymans, for example, was um, found to have infringed copyright in a photograph that he painted. And all the headlines, even in quite sophisticated places like Freeze and... Um, you trying to avoid saying art, the art, art, pub, art publications. <laughs> the, the headlines would say, 
Luke Toymans found guilty of plagiarism. And it's just ludicrous because we all know what plagiarism is. Plagiarism is if you take something um, hiding the fact that you've got it from another source at all and pass it off as your own. Very few artists are doing that now. Like Luke Toyman's, his entire practice is around the dissemination and mediation of images. And he is very keen for you to know that um, the images he uses started in a different context. That's and not the comment started, being made. It's, yeah. it's the core of the comment being made. And so, and we have these unhelpful cliches like, uh, good artists borrow, great artists steal. And actually, there are, if, the idea of great artists stealing is is a is a dead end because it's uh, you know great artists make use of cultural material in a way that adds to culture. And stealing probably isn't the right word to describe that dynamic. But it is funny because I think of this subject every time I see a case of this, which probably shows my age. I was I did something on copyright and con- conceptual art and when I was at uni, which is like, God, 10, well, God, way more than 10 years ago now. And it was quite new at the time. There weren't a lot of precedents when I was looking at it. So in my head, oh, this is an old subject people have been looking at for years. But actually, it's if you look at the cases coming through, there's a lot of ground still being covered. There's a lot of ambiguity and unpredictability within courts around how these cases are going to be treated. Definitely. And things have changed a lot in 30 years in the US, for example, where more things reach courtrooms than anywhere else. From 1992 onwards, when Jeff Koons lost a uh, an appropriation art case, the law has developed and come a long, a long way there. So that now that, you know, Richard Prince incorporates photographic material in his work and, um, most people think that providing that he's not damaging the underlying economic interests of the first creator, mm-hmm. then what he's doing should be allowed. And um, I, this is one of those areas where different parts of the world have a different point of view. So um, I worked on a case in the last few years where I, my client was a London gallery and they were showing work by an American painter and that painter was using source imagery taken from stills from a recently deceased French film director. And the French and the Americans approach IP from a very different starting point. So in the US, it's all about money. And it's all about the value of the economic monopoly that incentivizes people to create useful things. And they also have this incredibly strong free speech value. Mm-hmm that you know the freedom of expression and free speech is just culturally one of the things that they hold most dear whereas in france an artist's work is thought of as being indivisible from the artist's identity that's sacred and isn't it it's much more sacred different. and a transgression against their work is akin to a transgression against their person and all of that is worthy of protection in a way that is more significant than money so they're extremely different starting points mm-hmm. and in in that in that case the americans thought well this is so obviously fair use it doesn't even bear talking about and the french said this is so obviously a moral outrage you must be stopped immediately and how could you possibly have thought that this transgression against our late mother's work was ever going to be acceptable and in london we're here in the middle geographically but also culturally, philosophically, and legally. I think we lean towards the US system in terms of the balance between finance, like the economic value over the French. Yeah. Well, we generally are. I, I wouldn't like to say which side we lean towards the most because, you know, we do have a French conception of moral rights in our law in a way that's more extensive than in the US. And um, so I, I I would like to think in the UK, we sort of see it both ways. And we are very well placed to, to mediate this cultural difference. You know, and in the end, that case was settled in a way that was acceptable to both sides. But um, it was just interesting that the cultural starting point was so different. Mm, and you said something within that. You were saying about artists using other works as raw material. Yeah. Obviously, that phrase immediately correlates with the sort of 
debate emerging around AI in a more mm. direct way of literally using other images as raw material. Yes. Getting into a massive debate about that, but that's obviously going to be another area where this argument's played out. Absolutely. So the, one of the most popular talking points of the last six months in the art and AI space is, well, what right do artists have to object to AI reproducing their style? And it is such a difficult question because, um, as you say, we already have these quite complex fair use questions, even when there's no use of an AI tool. And there's a distinction to be made between thinking about the outputs that AI generates and whether those outputs um, infringe original works. But there's also the question of the process of the training in the first place and whether when an AI machine learning machine um, uses inputs and skims thing off skims images off the internet in order to train itself it, is that mechanical act of scraping and copying for the purpose of training itself a copyright infringement regardless of what outputs are created because uh, that machine is being trained using the unremunerated labor of everyone who has created the images that it's handling and working out exactly how to the extent that so one thing that we haven't yet got is extensive commercial applications of AI, but obviously it's coming and more and more people involved in design are are using AI to come up with a first draft for them, even if it's then refined by yeah. human designers. And it's telling that one of the first major lawsuits that is now underway is Getty suing Stability AI in both the US and the UK. And is it DeviantArt another one as well? Well, that's that that's that's a different case. Some artists have started a class action in the US against some of these image generators. But Getty's the reason I'm saying Getty's interesting is because Getty is currently facing an existential threat because at the moment, if you're a brand or a corporate looking for images to use in adverts, and let's say the nature of the advert means you want an image of a man sitting at his desk, one of the ways you are currently likely to get an image does that for you is to search an image library and pay to license stock imagery. Um, and so that's that's Getty's core revenue. Whereas if now you can type into AI, please give me a picture of a man at his desk looking slightly troubled and it'd be nice to have a sunset outside and like all these things, then obviously um, you've substantially replaced what um what the service getty provides and so you can understand why getty says well it's not fair that you've used all of our material to train the service and then we don't participate in any of the gains now you've replaced us now as it as it is the service probably isn't yet quite good enough to replace getty but it will be soon it's the principles isn't it it's the, getting... yeah the principles but i mean Poor Getty, but I'm also worried, more worried about the artists whose work's being scraped who haven't got that legal support to protect their image that's online, etc. Yeah, I am not that worried about this because I, in relation to artists, because actually relatively few artists have their entire career predicated on the reproduction of a very repeatable style mm. and the point is that mostly people buying art want to connect to a particular human story and lived experience and and actually ai generated substitutes wouldn't wouldn't fit the bill and and so i would say if if we get to the point where people are using AI to deceive buyers. And so if, if buyers actually think they're getting something by a named artist, when in fact the source isn't that named artist, it's by an AI tool, then yes, that's a problem. But 
but if people see something that is made in the style of another artist, they're not. It doesn't have the same value, and in, in the same way, but is there not that concern that like big? I think Louis Vuitton case where an artist their work is used in a way to inspire like advertising campaigns, things where they were not comfortable. Sorry to sound French, but they're not comfortable with like how their work is being used. Or inspired. Yeah, and I, and, and I think if people are actually, if, if, actually, if you get outputs that are actually deceptive and lead people and deceive people into thinking that a particular artist has made it or associated themselves with something um, and they haven't, then our existing law can deal with that and can put a stop to it. Um, so, uh, I mean, you're absolutely right, and people are very worried about these things. I, I think. What, I think what I would say is, um, and I, I have just written an article where I concluded with that one of the greatest achievements of artificial intelligence might yet be to remind us why actual intelligence is so interesting, because. Um, for me, most of the things that I've seen AI produce so far that purports to copy a style ends up showing you why the original is so good because it can't quite, doesn't quite get it right, doesn't quite get the balance right, doesn't quite get the judgment right. And artists are brilliant at sort of developing a set of principles that might inform their work and then remixing them and then or even breaking them in their own way in a way that at the moment just can't be replaced by AI. And let's not forget the um, the physical quality of art objects is also very hard for AI to replace at the moment. So it may be that AI can produce a digital, a passable digital impression of something, but how easy is it for AI to go ahead and produce an oil painting and go ahead and produce a sculpture? Uh, uh, and I'm, I'm certainly not saying that it won't develop so that it can do those things. But at the moment, I think um, artists have got quite a good um, first mover advantage ahead of those AI machines. I'm going to end on that because it's quite reassuring. And I like reassuring because I freak out about AI. Um, the only other question really I had was, what advice you'd have for anyone, and you can't say don't do it, um, anyone who's interested in becoming an art lawyer um, in your specific field, but sort of more generally? I think it's actually quite a hard thing to plan for because uh, um, I am obviously biased in favour of the particular route I took to it. And I have at least a couple of people reach out to me every week and tell me that I'm really interested in being an art lawyer. How, how can I do that? And most, what most of them have in common is that they start from a love for and passion for art and want to find a sort of decently paid and stable job in which they can pursue <laughs> that passion. Okay. <laughs> and, and for most people, I would say, that is the wrong way round because you you have to be a lawyer first mm. and a good lawyer first and then find an interest in and expertise in the art sector. So anyone who wants to be an art lawyer needs to start with wanting to be a lawyer to start with and they'd be well served to get experience in other sectors, partly so that when you come to work in art, you can just realise how bonkers it is and how different its norms are to other areas. Um, and it, it, a love of a love for an affinity for art will take you so far, but really the um, the key to being a sector specific lawyer is just understanding how the ecosystem of that particular area of commerce works. And I think there are probably a few more areas where the sector is so specialist that you actually have to understand that world and not just the law. And when, when I think about this, I think that um, I understand copyright law, but I could not advise in a music context because there are such um, specific frameworks around how publishing works and how agreements on that are reached at a national and international level. And you just have to know how it all works separately from the actual knowing the law. It's just industry norms are everything. And so anyone who wants to be involved in art and within 
art itself seems like a quite specific niche, but there are so many sub niches within that. Yeah. You know, I, I, there are people who are expert in restitution cases and or uh, heritage or um you know an, an old master attribution uh litigation is going to be different to some of the issues that you see every day in the contemporary art world and so there are so many sub niches and so if someone wants to be an art lawyer then i feel as though they have to work towards understanding the pressures and commercial context faced by those they want to advise. And for me, that my specialism has become artists, gallerists, auction houses and museums, mostly in a contemporary context. Um, and the, despite the fact I, I have a deep interest in and love for old master painting, but most of my work actually doesn't relate to that market mm. because that's just not, that's just happens not to be the commercial arena that I've taken part in over the last 10 years. But, um, you know, and occasionally I work on those things, but I, my, my true specialism comes from, uh, from understanding the art market. And so, yeah, if you want to be, and there are lots of people who become, to contradict myself, who 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 actually have worked in galleries, and that is an interesting way around for them because if they have actually been a participant in that ecosystem in some way, and then go off and train to be a lawyer, um, I, I do know a couple of good lawyers like that. Yeah, but mostly it has to be the way around. Start by being a lawyer, and then find your way into a specialism. That's helpful. I mean, I'm not going to be a lawyer. <laughs> after the AI conversation, but it has been very enlightening. Um, and I really well, I'm glad you, ha you haven't asked me the question that people love to ask lawyers is, are you worried about AI stealing your job? Um, so maybe we'll, I'm, we'll... I'm a journalist, I'm worried enough about my AI. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and on that happy note, I will thank you for your time. Um... Thanks, Ria. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can follow and subscribe to The Bigger Picture wherever you get your podcasts. And to learn more about this episode or to reach out to us directly, please visit us at arcata.com.